right now, my focus is taking what we do have and maximizing that. And, and we're not doing that. What I really would like to see before I think about adding new lifts is I want to see what this mountain, you know, how, how does it handle another whatever percentage it is of skiers and riders? But to do that, our first focus needs to be on public transportation and ways in which we can get people to continue to carpool, continue to use the bus, and, and hopefully get some more buses. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. I am pumped to get into Utah for the very first time today on this podcast. First, a reminder to please go to stormskiing.com and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter. This was a really big week for the storm as I launched a paid tier for the Storm Skiing newsletter. I have an introductory price that will be good from now until March 14th and at that time, the price will increase and a partial paywall will go up. This is a really big change for the storm, but the response so far has been really positive and I'm feeling really good about the decision. On the website, you will see a post I wrote on February 27th that breaks down the reason why I'm introducing a paid tier. Remember that the podcast is just a small part of the storm. I pushed out articles earlier this week, breaking down 2022 to 23 offerings for the Indy, Icon, and Mountain Collective passes, and subscribers were among the first people in the country to get the details on those pass suites. I will be breaking down the Epic and Power Passes as soon as those are live, so you are going to want to get in on that. For breaking news, you can also follow The Storm on Twitter or Instagram at StormSkiJournal. All right. Let's get right into it with my partners. First up, spot. Let's face it, if you're a skier, the risk of injury is unavoidable. Meaning if we send it too hard, we are just one crash away from crushing medical expenses. Not to mention less time spent on the slopes. That's why spot partners with ski resorts like Telluride, Taos, and more to offer injury insurance with lift tickets and season passes. Spot easily integrates with any booking platform and does all the heavy lifting to ensure guests are covered on the mountain. If your guests get hurt, Spot can pay up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. With Spot, skiers can focus on a full and quick recovery so they can get back in their skis and on the mountain as soon as possible. Visit stormskiing.getspot.com to partner with Spot and provide your skiers with an amazing experience while showing them that their health and safety are top priorities. A win-win for your resort and your guests. Skiers, make sure your mountain has Spot so you can tread with peace of mind this season. Learn more at stormskiing.getspot.com. That's stormskiing.getspot.com. And of course, I am still proud to partner with Mountain Gazette. In fact, we just renewed that partnership and I am pumped for that. Issue 196 of the Mountain Gazette dropped on my doorstep in December and it is just awesome. Photo galleries exploring the Cascades, house skiing, and my home city, New York City. Essays on snowboarding and zen, Alaskan Expeditions, and Mammoth Mountain founder Dave McCoy. 
There's even a little crash course on the amazing and mysterious Coyote. And of course, a moving look at skiing in Afghanistan before the country fell to the Taliban. But hey, don't just listen to me. Listen to my man, at Isaac underscore Gardener on Twitter. Here's what he said upon receiving his issue. Quote, I had heard the hype from at Storm Ski Journal, but this is more beautiful and even more appealing than I had imagined. Thanks at Skiing Rogie. Thanks so very much. I need this this season and for many more. And tweet. Don't miss the next one. Subscribe now. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions over at mountaingazette.com. This code is only valid for listeners of the storm. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 76, Amber Broadway, President and Chief Operating Officer of Solitude Mountain Resort. We are busting into Utah today. And I am very excited to welcome the Powder Mecca into the storm. And what better place to start than the Cottonwoods, some of the finest snow traps on the planet. Big Cottonwood does get a bit overlooked on the national scene. And frankly, what wouldn't get overlooked sitting next to Alta and Snowbird? But Solitude and Brighton will hold their own against just about anybody. 500 inches of snow per year a ton of really fun terrain, and an interconnect that makes this into a much bigger ski experience than either resort's individual stats let on. Now, when I say solitude gets overlooked, we all know that's relative. Solitude in 2022, compared to solitude 20 years ago, is the opposite of overlooked. In fact, the advent of the Icon Pass and a surging Utah population have introduced the same traffic and congestion issues to Big Cottonwood Canyon as we're seeing next door in Little Cottonwood. It's a really, really interesting modern ski story at one of America's snowiest ski areas. It's a fascinating time to be there, and I think Altera has the right leader in charge. Today, we'll hear from her and where she thinks solitude is headed in the years ahead. Let's go. My guest today has been President and Chief Operating Officer of Solitude Mountain Resort, Utah, since last June. Solitude features 82 named runs spread across 1,200 acres on a 2,494-foot vertical drop. The resort is served by nine chairlifts, including four high-speed quads. Located in Utah's Big Cottonwood Canyon, Solitude receives 500 inches of average annual snowfall. Prior to taking the top job at Solitude, she spent eight years at Sugarbush, Vermont, where she held roles managing risk and safety, guest services, parking operations, public events operations, communications and PR, on-site brand management, and charitable giving and donations. She earned several awards in these roles, including the National Ski Areas Association's Best Guest Safety Program in 2020 and the Vermont Governor's Excellence in Workplace Safety Award in 2018. Amber Broadaway is my guest. Amber, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Stuart. I'm glad to be here. So first of all, Amber, let's just jump right into this season. How has this been going for you, both for the resort as a whole and for you as your first winter leading this amazing Utah mountain. <laughs> 
well, it's uh, it's it's been a year. I think it's one myself and my family will will not forget. Um, you know, I'm really happy to report Solitude's having um, a fantastic year. Um, visits have been have been up. Um, you know, snow has been challenging, and I, you know, I, I've learned pretty quickly that Utahns are number one, uh, r- really knowledgeable on weather. And uh, two, um, they're very, very particular about their their powder. Um, so it's been a good year for the resort, and you know, I know we're going to get into this later, but we we've, we've been able to kind of you know um, try some new things this season that I think have been helpful. Um, we've also learned some things, um, and then for for me in this role, it's been it's been awesome. I I feel very lucky, you know, um, leaving. I was very happy at Sugarbush. Um, and I, and I love the work and the team I was with and Vermont is where I'm from and my family are there. So, you know, to leave that, um, was a big decision. Uh, but coming here to solitude, you know, it feels very familiar. Um, it feels the, the team here feels very familiar to what, um, the team I had, had come to know and love at Sugarbush and, um, you know, being here in Utah where there's even a greater, perhaps just greater quantity of people who love the mountains. Um, you know, my family and I feel like we're at home. Yeah, that Utah ski culture and Utah ski life and climate, by the way, are, are just amazing. And we'll get into that in a little bit. You mentioned that you grew up in Vermont. Is that where you're originally from? Did you grow up skiing there? I did. Yeah, I did. I grew up um, in Windsor, Vermont, and I grew up uh, skiing Mount Escutney. That was my home mountain. Oh, Oh, wow. Yeah. So what do you think about about Escutney in its current state? You know, it's it's not what it used to be, but but it, it endures and the community has really rallied around it. And for, for the for the listeners who may not be familiar with Escutney, it used to be quite a large ski area somewhere in the neighborhood of 1500 to 2000 vertical, had a high speed quad at the summit, had a pretty nice little lift system. Uh, place went bankrupt. That high speed lift is now over at Crotchet in Vermont. And the ski area, it's lower 400 or so vertical feet are now served by a T-bar and rope toe. It's very, very affordable. It's a nice little community area. The top is for skinners and folks who want to hike up there, but it's it's set aside as a nature slash skiing preserve. So it's a really unique operation. I thought it was a really clever way to keep a historic ski area that was would otherwise have disappeared going in a form, but what's your opinion, Amber? I'm really curious as someone who grew up there and has a connection to that place. Yeah. So Mount Escutney definitely has a very special place in my heart. Um, and the, um, the history there is my grandfather, Jim Murphy was the Windsor high school, um, ski coach. He took over from, um, Mickey Cochran. I'm sure many people will remember that name when Mickey left. Uh, he was the coach of Windsor, I think in there, it was the early sixties. So he ended up moving his family up North and my grandpa came in and took over. And so, you know, he raised my, my mom and my, my aunts and uncles, um, as skiers. And, um, he had grown up in, in the Northeast and taken the, the ski train up to Stowe, uh, back in the late thirties. So, you know, back then when he was coaching, you know, he, his athletes had to not only alpine but they had to nordic and and ski jump so i grew up 
in a household where we we learned how to Nordic ski at a very young age. You know, I remember my, our back shed was full full of ski gear. We had jump, <laughs> jumping skis and the old wooden wow. cross country skis and and you know and so my first memories of skiing at Mount Escutney with my grandfather are helping him lace his boots. You know, remember the old very heavy uh, rubber boots? I I used to um, help him lace those up, and actually those were the first boots I had. And I remember helping him get his um, safety straps on. Um, but my brothers and I had two brothers, um, and Rhett and Aaron, and we had, we literally were raised on the mountain. Like a lot of our friends back then, you know, we would get dropped off um, sometime in the morning. Uh, I still, I still don't know, remember how we navigated food for the day, but um <laughs> You know, we'd all, the kids there, we'd spend the day at the mountain and, you know, they had Amazing. night skiing back then. Um, and uh, it was a, it was a really special time. And, you know, and so for me, when I think about Mount Escutney and kind of where they are, I feel nothing but just great pride and love for that community. I actually also was a condominium. I owned a condominium in Mount Escutney. Oh, wow. But I, but I lived through the two bankruptcies. So um, my brothers and I raced. We raced for Windsor High School. And we also, um, my brother Rhett and I raced for USSA. And right in the middle of my high school career was the first bankruptcy um, that, mm. that Escutney went through. And it was right in the middle. And it really disrupted, uh, when I think back, my, my career in alpine racing. Um, and my brother and I actually switched over to Suicide Six. Um, where we, where we were able to keep going for a little bit, but that was really hard to watch that community. Um, you know, like many of these small, um, you know, ski resorts in America, they they, t they can sometimes be the heartbeat of the community and the, the gathering place. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was true. So I think that was closed for one or two seasons in my high school years. And then it got, um, purchased by the Plowsteiners who took it over and, and, and ran it for a long time. And then the resort closed again when I owned property on the mountain um, just before transitioning. In fact, one of the ways I ended up at, at Sugarbush was um, I met, met my now husband, but Wynn Smith had done this, um, I think it was called the Mount Escutney Refugee Pass. So the winter after Mount Escutney closed um, they used to offer um, this, it was Sunday afternoon through Friday, non-holiday pass. So you couldn't ski Saturdays and you couldn't ski Saturday mornings. And um, I had purchased that pass as a, you know, I guess I was in my early thirties at that point. And, um, and then Scotty went bankrupt for the second time. And Wynn Smith offered the similar pass at the similar price point to any Mount Escutney person who had had a pass holder the year before. And I think I was one of only a handful of people who purchased it, but okay. that was kind of my first introduction into, into Wynn Smith. And uh, uh, also uh, that was my first pass at Sugarbush. So there's a clear, pretty clear line between your childhood home and the place where you made your name in the ski industry. So let's go back and look at this, Amber. When did you start working in the ski industry and take us through your jobs up till the time when you start joined the team at Sugarbush? Oh no, my 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 time in the industry started at Sugarbush. Oh really? Yeah, there was, um, I actually, um, like I said, kind of talking about, it's funny because I come from a skiing family and I spent so much time as a kid, at, you know, at, at the mountains, but when I, you know, when I turned 18, 
I couldn't afford to ski anymore. You know, that was kind of the, when we talk about past modeling, right? Back then, um, there was, there was no, there were no college pass prices. You went from being a kid to being an adult and passes were, you know, thousands of dollars at that point. So I stopped skiing, um, except for, you know, Vermont used to do for the, for the resorts that weren't impacted by national forests. There were used to be these Vermont ski days. So every now and then I was able to, to pick up some of those. And then I, I was at, I uh, went to college, um, at Dartmouth in Hanover, New Hampshire, and was able to ski at the Skiway um, through college. But, but I didn't. I kind of left the industry, um, or I, I left skiing for a period of time, and didn't make my way back until 2013. 2013 is I had been skiing at Sugarbush for um, three seasons. I met my now husband, who lived in in the Mad River Valley. Actually, was still living at Mount Oskegee uh, and working in the Windsor West Windsor area, and um, you know, I skied um, Sugarbush for a few years and then I ended up wanting to move to the Mad River Valley and I got a job at Sugarbush. And that was my first job in the industry in 2013. How did you transition, Amber, from skier on the mountain to someone who worked there? How did that opportunity come up? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> essentially, I went to the website and uh, looked for open jobs. So okay. when I when I decided to move to the Mad River Valley um, full time, I actually was working as a contractor um, for the Stryker Corporation, which is in Michigan. And um you know, I had worked for them previously. Um, my brother had been at that company for a period of time. And I, when I transitioned back, I worked as a defense contractor overseas for most of my twenties, um, working in the Marshall Islands and Antarctica. And then when wow. I trans back, transitioned back to the States, uh, I got a job at Stryker and I was doing that when I moved to the Valley and I didn't, I was working at home. And at that time I was new to the community and I didn't want to work at home. I wanted to meet people. And so I went to the Sugarbush website and I started putting in applications. And um, I actually had an interview for a job in the um, lodging um, department. And when the, hire, the hiring supervisor at the time saw my resume, um, you know, the feedback was, you know, she saw how much I had had a background in, in health and safety and compliance. And she was like, um, you know, our, our then chief administrative officer, Hardy Merrill, um, was looking to hire a risk uh, and safety manager at Sugarbush. They hadn't had one in a number of years. And that was really my intro. I actually started as a my first job at Sugarbush. Wynn loves to say this story. Um, I was a part time spin instructor. I, I was. A, yeah, I, I did a lot of side hustle in my life and I nice. loved coaching. Um, I coached uh, high school track for a number of years and I love teaching fitness classes. So my first job at Sugarbush was a part-time spinning and fitness instructor at the cool. rec center. And that was my foot in the door um, until this full-time job in my career background um, came open, um, um, working for Hardy Merrill um, as the risk and safety manager. So let's Let's talk about Sugarbush a little bit because obviously a lot of folks from Utah are going to listen to this podcast. A lot of folks from the a lot of listeners out west, and most of them are very clear with me. I have no intention of ever skiing the east. <laughs> However, I'll, I'll, let's make the point here for them that if they ever are, the place to go is the Spine in Vermont 
from Sugarbush up to Jay, Mad River Glen, <laughs> Bolton Valley, Smuggler's Notch. So it, it is just such a unique environment, so different from the rest of New England in the amount of snow it gets and the kind of terrain it gets. Sugarbush is just an amazing place. So just talk about that mountain from a skiers and terrain point of view for a moment and just lay this out for your solitude people who, who turn their nose up. <laughs> I know you love your solitude yeah. folks, but everyone who turns their nose up at the East, tell them about Sugarbush. Yeah, no, I, I'm chuckling mostly because I, you know, every day this season I've skied and I come back with just a, you know, a grin from ear to ear because number one, it's generally sunny. And number yep. two, the snow is so incredible. Right. Um, even though there was, there was quite a drought here, of, um, you know, from early January until, well, really just this past week, but yeah. So, um, you know, East coast skiing, it's, it's very different. And I, and I keep <laughs> telling people, I was like, when you, when you arrive at solitude and your bar is on the floor, it's not hard to, uh, to enjoy the conditions here that can, for the, for the locals or the people right. who've been here a long time, um, you know, really expect, but, um, yeah, the skiing. So I had spent most of my ski career before getting to Sugarbush as a racer, um, and also in Southern Vermont. So Mount Escutney, and, and I think people in Vermont don't realize, but there is truly a line, the snow belt. Yeah. And you didn't, I wouldn't have believed it. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I, when my husband was telling me the amount of snow they got in the matter River Valley, I was just like, mm -hmm. okay, this is, this is what they do. They, kind of infl inflate their numbers. And then I moved there and I was like, oh my gosh, there really is so right. much snow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, the Mad River Valley was the first place anybody ever asked me, like, how many days do you ski a season? And I was like, <laughs> what? I mean, that just had never crossed my mind. And right. now I'm here in the Mad River Valley, which I, my husband and I always, uh, we called it, you know, the you know, the, the Valley of Eden, but it was also the land of superhumans. Um, you know, people, people, people arrive at the Mad River Valley, much like I think they arrive here in the Wasatch and that's, you know, mountain enthusiasts. These are hikers, these are bikers, these are skiers and riders and backcountry and, and mountain biking. And, uh, you know, so, so Sugarbush was Sugarbush. Absolutely. I think some of the, the first things for me learning to ski there or not learning to ski because I know, but I don't know, in some ways, I guess, I, I guess that is a fair statement, but um, the wood skiing, right? That was not something that was as prevalent, um, uh, uh, so expansive and so part of the way in which people ski and ride uh, in Southern Vermont. I know like Magic and, and you know, others do have some off, awesome wood skiing, but at Sugarbush, that is like, it is the, it is the thing. You know, you can have these days at Sugarbush yeah. where, you know, it is busy, you know, you can have, you know, eight, nine, 10,000 skiers, but man, if it, if the conditions are good, you don't always see them because they're all skiing right. in the woods. Right. Um, and I think some things that people forget is, well, um, you know, Sugarbush has two mountains. I think the acreage was, you know, skiable, uh, acres were, were four, four to 500. But when you added all of that side country between Mount Allen and, and Lincoln Peak in the Slidebrook Basin, it's like, I think it has like 4,000 acres. I mean, it's massive. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the way that Sugarbush was laid out um, with all that Slidebrook Basin terrain, and then you can kind of hop on the bus at the bottom, made it unique. And there isn't a lot of that in Vermont where you can get into this incredible side country um, and then get to a main road pretty easily and hop on a bus 
that will take you back to the resort base. Um, and then literally my house, my husband and I live on Route 17. So we actually live right on the road to Mad River. And I, you know, I talked to Mike, uh, Mike Mon from Alta recently. And I was like, I'm like, wow, Alta, there's so many similarities between Alta and the community and the culture there in Mad River. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, I, I draw a lot of parallels with that. I'm like, you know, Alta's kind of like, you know, Mad River times whatever, 10, but, um, mm -hmm. You know, skiing in Mad River, the steeps there, the 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 terrain, the the quality of snow is tr tremendous. And I, you know, when I ski here at Solitude, I, there's certain trails. You know, some of my my favorite trails are those very narrow, steep double fall line, and and that's the traditional New England trail that you're going to find, right? Right. Um, and I, you know, and there's kind of one of those off of our sunrise triple called roller coaster. And it, it really reminds me a lot of skiing, um, you know, back at, back at Sugarbush, but maybe a little rumble off of uh, castle rock. Oh my gosh. I know. I, I we talked <laughs> a little bit, you know, solitude has quite a lot of moguls and, uh, um, but they're beautiful. You know, the moguls mm -hmm. here, if I, I'm like, man, you can get on rumble or you can get on, um, uh, Middle Earth at Sugarbush, and those yeah. those moguls are like they they describe them the size of a you know Volkswagen bugs, right? They're they yep. can be massive, <laughs> unbelievable. So so Sugarbush, it's it's a special mountain. It's a big mountain that I always look at that 400 acres, and I'm like, that's a missed opportunity to me because yeah. you look at Stratton, which claims 600, and and Sugarbush feels two or three times the size of Stratton. I like Stratton, but it, there's no way it's bigger than Sugarbush. So the place is huge. It's definitely worth putting on your list, regardless of where you live and ski. But the thing that really made Sugarbush special from my seat uh, for those for that period when you started there was the leadership of Wynn Smith, who had really brought Sugarbush out of the dark days of the American Skiing Company when the community and the mountain really had kind of drifted apart. So talk about working with Wynn who, by the way, has a very high opinion of you and was very excited to hear you on the podcast. He's a very good friend of this program. But talk about working for Wynn and and what you learned from him about building a community and running a large, complex mountain. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's an awesome topic. Um, Wynn Smith is is a very special person in my life, and you know, I feel a lot of times when I sit here and I look out the window at this incredible mountain even just driving this morning, I kind of had to stop and just take that breath of looking at solitude because it's just so beautiful. Um, and I, and I really feel grateful that, you know, when and Sugarbush came into my life when it did, and it, um, has, it gave me the foundation for this career in this industry that in a lot of ways, like I mentioned, having grown up in a ski family, you know, it feels like a homecoming, you know, it feels like this is, you know, my childhood, the ethics that were instilled in me from my grandparents, um, you know, this is this is where I belong. And and when I met Wynn um, and I was pretty lucky, you know, when I I, I I talked about, you know, kind of starting in as the as the fitness instructor, but I quickly got into that role as the resort risk and safety manager. And, um, you know, when when made that role, which they had had previously, but but had had not had that in a few years. but you know, he, he really set the tone from the beginning on embracing, Hey, this is important to us. And, and this is important to me as, as a, as a leader 
and we're going to make sure that this gets integrated into our business operation. And so I felt really lucky that my job at Sugarbush allowed me to work really closely with him um, and therefore developed a, a pretty a pretty tight relationship. I think some of the things about Win Smith that, you know, now that I sit in my chair, um, I, I think a lot back to my time um, sitting underneath him as a manager or part of his senior leadership team. And, and you're absolutely right. He, he was, he was one of the best speakers. Um, he's, he's been given the gift, um, or he's, he's learned the skill of public speaking. Um, and, you know, and really trying to speak to his employees, um, his, um, the, 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 the second homeowner community at Sugarbush, as well as the locals. And I really watched him make an effort to cultivate those relationships. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things that I have learned um, and appreciated in my time with Wynn is that he put a lot of time and effort into cultivating the relationship with the people in which he worked and lived. And, um, and that's something that I'm, I also am trying to emulate here. I kind of, I think I, I'm often saying to myself, ch channel your inner win, Amber. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, the other thing, Wynn and I used to have a pretty sparky relationship. Uh, we, we had a lot of fun and, you know, I, I, I'm a Vermonter. I, I, I was, was raised there. My family had been in Vermont since the 1960s. They, you know, they so, and here was Wynn, right? So this, this guy from like Westchester County and, you know, I came up here and it used to make me so mad. He, he knew, <laughs> he knew more about Vermont and uh, the, the economics and the business. And um, then I did, we would get into these kind of fun, fun little, um, you know, debates, sparky debates. And um, I used to remember just getting so stewed because you know, you, you just had, I learned quickly, you had to be real careful about getting into a conversation with Wynn because sure enough, he was very well read. He was very mm -hmm. well educated. And <laughs> if you didn't have your facts and ducks in a row, man, he was, he'd let you have it. And, and that was, that was a really good experience for me as well, because it also taught me, you know, you know, the importance of, of, of understanding your business and understanding your community and, and, you know, um, making sure that you do have the right details um, oriented and lined up. So when you do have conversations or you, you know, you get put on the spot or called on the carpet, which, which we do and we should, um, that you can respond uh, articulately and intelligently about it and real, you know, I think that's one of the best things that I've learned with Wynn is, you know, it's pretty transparent. Um, and he tried to, you know, give the information in real time um, as much as he could. And that was sort of an inspiration for why I wanted to start. I don't know if you've saw, seen, but I, I do a, a Sarah Huey, our PR and communications manager, you know, has helped pull together um, a blog called Amber's Updates. And I do it every two weeks. And the inspiration for that was from Wynn, as I watched Wynn, who weekly, I mean, he used to send out um, blog updates called Wins Word every week in the winter. And, you know, and, and he talked about everything and he, you know, when we needed to air the dirty laundry and, and, and put it out there, he did. And sometimes he would talk about his family and sometimes he would talk about, you know, things about the mountain that people didn't know. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I could go off, but my, my, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, my appreciation for Wynn and Sugarbush, the team that he put together, he put together an incredible team there and, and the work that he did in cultivating community um, 
was was phenomenal. There's no question. Wynn was a, a really effective steward of that mountain for nearly two decades. And really, it was one of the few remaining large independent ski areas in New England. And, and I, f- I think he, he felt a big responsibility to run this place and, and, and have a, a place that wasn't under the curtain of these corporate giants. But in 2019, he made the decision to sell the mountain to Altera. What was your response, Amber, when you learned that news? I cried. I cried like a baby. And I think the only one that may have taken it harder is his granddaughter, Vivian. Um, Yeah. And it was, um, you know, for me, it was just that initial, um, oh my gosh, like this is so incredible and so beautiful. I, I don't want this to end, you know? And so it was, you know, it's a bit selfish really. Um, because, you know, I knew that meant change with, with the, the team and, and, you know, and, and, the, and the potential way in which we would, um, uh, you know, interact in the go forward. But once I kind of got over that initial, like, okay, this isn't just about you, Amber. Um, and we had time to sit with him and, and um, understand his decisions and his, his reasoning and then get to meet the Altera team. And honestly, you know, it's similar. There's a lot of similarities at least for me, I draw a lot of similarities and parallels between sol- between Sugarbush and Solitude. And I think about the DeSeal Horse family here, you know, much like when they 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 were privately private privately owned by this family at you know for a long period of time, about the same, maybe a little longer with the DeSeal Horse. And you know, a lot of the the infrastructure here at Solitude was put in by that family, you know. And um, so anyway, once um once I kind of dealt with my own self, my own personal feelings on that. And I, and I spent time with Wynn trying to understand why, you know, he really, it wasn't an easy decision. No one makes decisions like that hasty, but I think that Wynn really, you know, Wynn loves Sugarbush. He's still skiing. He still owns there. He's still involved. His family is still there. Um, you know, so for him, he really was committed to making sure that Sugarbush was going to be in the best position to continue on for his grandchildren. For you personally, Amber, was there a moment when you began to believe that Altera was the right owner to guide Sugarbush into the future? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Absolutely. When I had the opportunity to meet the Altera senior leadership team, they um, uh, they came out. I think the timing. I don't remember how this all unfolded exactly, but they came out um, a couple of times, actually. Um, They came out to meet us and sit with us, um, our our senior leadership team and our management team and our employees. And when I first met Rusty uh, Gregory, who's the CEO, who was CEO then as well, and heard him speak, I was like, wow. I mean, it's hard to imagine another person like Wynn, who is just so uh, incredibly gifted and skilled at speaking to, to groups of people. And, and Rusty was, you know, he really, he sat down, you know, he sat with us. He didn't, he didn't talk at us. He sat with us and kind of talked a little bit about, you know, Altera Mountain Company and their values and their ethics and, you know, how they came together, why they came together. And we got to meet the senior, you know, some of the members of the senior team um, who spent a lot of time with us, you know, and, and really that transition period was very, thoughtful. It was, um, it was, it was very well done. 
you know, um, it didn't, it, it, it felt like they were, they were giving Sugarbush the time needed to, to kind of digest this and, and also figure out what the transition was going to look like. Um, and, you know, Altera Mountain Company prides itself on, you know, that we're a collection of, of these unique um, resorts. And, you know, certainly there were things within the, the acquisition and, and the new ownership that, that, that changed with, you know, some basic software systems and, and, and the way in which we, you know, managed certain parts of the business. But ultimately, you know, it really has remained true at Sugarbush. And that is what I inherited here at solitude as well is that there is a lot of like you know i i think of my i work for rob perlman and and then our our mountain division president is mark brownlee and i can't tell you the number of times mark mark brownlee or rob or 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 rusty have been like well amber it's your resort you know you need to figure this (laughs) out what do you think? You know? And I mean, they, like several times since I started in June where it's like, well, Amber, and, uh, and it makes me think of Win. you know, I mean, that's the no. kind of leadership that Win would have used as well, which is like, Hey, we hired you for a reason. You're in this job. You have great resources around you. What do you think is the best thing for, for sugar bush or solitude? And, and, and that was, that was very much the experience that I had had in my one, you know, short time, um, going from Sugarbush to Altera Mountain Company. And then with the transition out here is, you know, it is, it's very supportive. It's, it's, um, there's a, there, there is a lot of latitude for the resorts to, to make the decisions that are right for, for, for our team, our staff and our communities here. So let's talk about that move, Amber, from Sugarbush to Solitude. It sounds like you were very happy at Sugarbush. You're a native Vermonter. You had a great mountain, a great position there, great leadership team around you. But one of the advantages of being part of a company like Altera is they own resorts all over the place. And there's only one general manager position at Sugarbush, right? And only one person can hold that job at a time. If you're part of this big conglomerate, they can they can give you opportunities other places without you having to leave the company and leave the family. So how did the opportunity to take the top job of solitude come up and why was that appealing to you? Yeah, um, so I had, as part of my career development plan with Wynn, um, I would say I started at Sugarbush in 2013. I would say within the first year, I knew pretty wholeheartedly that, you know, I had made it home. The ski industry, this was my calling. This is where I wanted to be. My husband, Branson, um, you know, it really fit our lifestyle. Um, and then pretty soon thereafter, when, and I started to have conversations about, you know, what, what was my career path? Um, what did I need to do and work on in order to get to a point where I could become a general manager or resort president? And so he and I had already started early on into my years at, Sh- at Sugarbush figuring that out. He helped you know, me identify areas that I needed to work on for knowledge and experience. But when Altera came in and I got to meet the team and and through that initial transition, I did know, I did have a good sense that um, not only was the Altera Mountain Company purchase going to be really good for Sugarbush in the community, it was going to, you know, create this fiscal sustainability um, because, you know, and I talk a little bit about fiscal sustainability because 
you know, I told you earlier on, like I grew up at a resort that went bankrupt twice. Yeah. Like I, I know very intimately what it feels like to be in those communities when the resorts shut down. It literally disrupted my alpine skiing career. And then I was a property owner the second time. So I saw oh, what happened to real estate values, right? So anyway, I talk a bit about that because I do think that's one of the things with Altera Mountain Company is that it does bring that level of um, you know, fiscal sustainability that, that sometimes, and I even feel this here with solitude, right? Like these communities that have gone through this change and it's hard and they, they, they're frustrated, but you know, now that we're a part of Altair Mountain Company, like, you know, we, we, we're in a path We're we're part of a family that takes care of each other. So anyway, when we, when this transition happened, I did, I did have that inkling early on that this was probably going to be good for somebody like me, um, who was interested in career development in the industry, whether that was at Sugarbush or whether that was somewhere else. Um, and, and really quite, from a quite basic level, what what ended up happening is um, Altera put out an email in, um, I think it was spring of 2021, that Kim Mayhew um, was going to be retiring and uh, they were looking to um, hire her replacement from within the company. The email came out. I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, wow, this is interesting. And my my colleague sitting behind me, Amy Kretz, who I adore, holler, yeah. literally hollers through the wall. Hey, Amber, <laughs> they've got a job for you at Solitude. <laughs> and I was just cackling. Now, mind you, I had never been when that this email came out. I had never been here. Um, but I went home and I started talking to my husband, Branson. And, he had skied Utah a few times and absolutely loved it out here. And he's like, you should, you know, he, he started doing a lot. He's like, you should apply. You should apply. And I was like, <laughs> at this point I had a nine month old. So we had okay, a three oh, year wow. old and a nine month old. And I was like, oh, wow. oh my gosh. I'm like, you're crazy town. I can't do this. <laughs> but I ran into Wynn, ironically, probably a couple days later. And I said, Hey, Wynn, this job has come open and I'm thinking about applying. And he was like, you know, Amber, I meant I was going to reach out to you and he's like, I really think this would be good for you. Uh, and he's like, at the very least, it's a great opportunity to see what this process is like to maybe get a sense of, 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 of what the company's looking for, as well as to just get your name out there. And I was like, all right. So I hadn't done my resume in a long time and I threw my name into the hat and, you know, lo and behold, I kind of just, that process just kept moving forward. And for me, it was, I mentioned earlier, I was a track coach and it was kind of like running the hurdles. So like every hurdle that came up, I was like, all right, I'm going to get over this hurdle. So, you know, from setting in the resume to doing my prep for the interviews, um, you know, each one, I just got more excited and, and did a lot of work and, um, you know, each, each hurdle that I went through in that process, like until I finally came out here and got to meet the team, that was really for me, that was really what helped me decide. I mean, it's, I, I mean, it's not hard to come out here and be like, wow, this place is so beautiful. It's amazing, right? I mean, it just is. But to decide to move, take a job like this and move my family from Vermont, which is where I'm from and all my resources were, and I had a 10-month-old at this point. I mean, what really sealed the deal was when I came here to Solitude and got to meet the team. And 
you know, and that's where I say like there's so many similarities for me here as as Sugarbush. The team here at Solitude um, that I get to work with is is just incredible. It's it's a it's a group of people that made me feel very um, you know familiar to my team at Sugarbush, who I adored, and really wasn't hankering to leave. Um, and then when I came here and just met these this incredible group of people, and I also knew. While it wasn't the greatest time for me and my family, I also knew that these jobs don't come open very often. And I felt like, okay, this is going to be crazy chaos, but let's, my husband was super excited and super supportive. And, you know, we were just like, we're going to do it. So I was, I felt very lucky that I had made it to a finalist. Um, Sky Folks, who runs Warner Park, was actually the hiring manager. And he and I just, completely clicked. He's, he's incredible. I don't know if he's been on your podcast, but he's also not yet, but Rob has. Yeah. Yeah. So I work with for Rob now, but originally I, I had got hired on by sky and sky ran Stratton um, for a long period of time. And so he and I just really connected. And, um, you know, I, when I, when I got to meet the key players in the organization, um, you know, Sky and Rob and Mark and Rusty. And then behind me, I had Wynn and John Hammond at Sugarbush. I knew taking this job, which I, I will admit was, was a bit of a leap of faith. And it was probably a little bit of a leap of faith for, for a few people. Um, but I knew that I, I was, if I got into this and it was going to be, I knew there would be, I would need help. And I knew that I felt 100% supportive from my family to my friends to this incredible group of, of leaders within the Altera Mountain Company. And that's, that's, for me, what really sealed the deal and why I knew moving from Vermont to, sol to, here, to coming here at Solitude was the right decision. And... Now that you've gotten through part of a winter, you arrived last spring, last June, and and were able to kind of build up and and get the feel for the place. And it's been a really interesting winter. You, it, it really dumped in November and December, and then you had a real dry spell from January and February. Looks like the snow is back, but just you, you've talked a little bit about how your first year has gone, but just talk about moving from east to west and, and also changing positions, right? Because you're, you're sort of in the uh, back of the house before, you know, working on the risk and safety stuff, maybe not working as much with the lifts and the on-mountain stuff, but now you have a whole new set of concerns, things to worry about, everything from avalanche control, which isn't really much of a consideration in the East to traffic in Big, Big Cottonwood Canyon, which is a whole other issue, but then you don't have to worry about snowmaking as much and some other things that, that are big considerations for Eastern resorts. So just talk about what that learning curve has been like for your first season there at Solitude and, and how you've dealt with those challenges. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do, I just want to do a quick go back. I do want to give a quick shout out to Kim Mayhew. You know, she um, was a stalwart in, throughout her career and she really set me up well when I got here, you know, she had done some of the hard work by implementing paid parking. And um, you know, when I got here, I just, you know, she had really, taken an organization and, and, and put her, um, you know, fine touches on it and, and turned, turned over to me an incredible team. Um, yes. So transitioning from East to West and the learning curve of this job, 
Absolutely. My role at Sugarbush was different. Um, as you said, I was in some of those um, more back of the house um, roles, although I kind of kept amassing like, you know, when you look, when you read my like job title from Sugarbush, it was weird, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, that was one of those where when really, you know, when you're privately owned, he, he had somebody who was, I was very motivated to, I, I, I loved working there. The, the people at, and the, and the guests at Sugarbush were so awesome. And every opportunity that came up for me to try to take on a new team, I'm a coach. Like I was raised by a coach. My aunts and uncles are coaches and I coached, um, high school, um, sports for a long time. And like, that is like my calling is when I can get into roles where I can take on teams and help them, you know, kind of, I always feel like, you know, it's kind of like raising the bar and then coaching your teams to, to find their best selves. Right. How do, how do you take this group of collective group of individuals and 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 make them, you know, um, embrace their best selves and then also find ways to support each other. So the transition has been interesting, absolutely going from um, a role where I was, you know, uh, a vice president to being a president. You know, I think I, I, I definitely am being faced with with um, responsibilities that weren't really on my radar, right? So, you know, being head of the Solitude Village Master Association, right? So now, like how I how I coordinate all of the homeowners here, um, the role with the town, right? That we have a newly formed town of Brighton, um, and that that wasn't that wasn't a role that I was familiar with at Sugarbush. Um, you know, interacting with the Forest Service, Sugarbush was was on national forest um, land, but I didn't have those primary touch points. So I think I think those are some of the biggest learning um, uh, the learning curves for me have been with this role the 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 additional roles that come with it. So not only are you you know a president, a resort president running a resort <laughs> that is literally only one part of the job you know right. you are also you know kind of the liaison with your town and and the liaison with your homeowners and then the liaison with the forest service and then you know um so so that's been probably one of the bigger parts of it the other the other part people ask me like what's what is you know what what's the big so what's so surprising about your job and i was like well you spend a lot of time people with people right and and managing relationships and so it's managing the relationships with my direct reports and you know helping to facilitate the relationships with managers and employees and and a lot of communication with customers um but but you so you spend i part, part of me wishes i took psychology in college right, right. like so i <laughs> i learned a bit but i was i that i had better maybe skills in my toolbox for for how to help manage the human side of it, um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of um, people and and relationship management that goes into this role. It's not just scheduling the employees, you know, ordering what you need, uh, approving payroll, um, you know, literally going, you know, I at Sugarbush I was saw parking, you know, running working in the parking lot or working, you know, when at this level it's it is a lot of that relationship. So that's kind of, in terms of the role, those were probably some of the, the biggest changes that I, I maybe hadn't really anticipated. And then as far as East versus West, I, I really feel one of the things I, 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 I am super grateful for is that I didn't come from operations at Sugarbush. 
but I worked for some of the, I would say, um, most aggressive operators I know. Uh, so Wynn and John Hammond, um, you know, and I sat in, we called them snow plan. It was a daily meeting every day. And I sat in that meeting for many years. And so I, and I'm really glad that I did. I'm really glad. In fact, that was a very key part of what Wynn um, tasked me with, with my own personal development. So sitting in there listening to the experts at Sugarbush talk about snowmaking and grooming and lift maintenance and lift operations and patrol and, um, you know, fixing snow cats and stuff. And I, and I feel very lucky that I spent all those, all those hours in snow plan, which some of which were, you know, long and, and, and at times painful, but coming here, having that, you know, basic knowledge as, as, my colleague here, Nate, Nate Lee, he's our head of operations. He's like, you know, you, you know, you know, just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and, that, and it's true, right? I know just enough about operations where I, I know how to write, ask the right questions. And I think that's probably one of the best skills that I, I bring to my role is knowing enough about the resort operations and the role to ask the right questions. Um, and, and that's what I, I try to do coming from the East is questions on snowmaking and grooming and conditions and, you know, um, yeah, parking. I mean, parking and traffic and, you know, um, you know, being able to ask the right questions of the team so that I can understand why we do the things we do and or do we have opportunity to consider um, changing things up. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's talk about the mountain here a little bit. All resorts that are on federal land have to have a master plan on file. The, the most recent one I can find for solitude was updated in 2001. That doesn't mean it's the most recent. It's just the most recent I can find. But can you give us an update on where solitude may be with the next iteration of its master plan? <laughs> yeah, honestly, I'm like, I didn't even know you could find those as public documents. Um, <laughs> so... Um, Yes, we've done. We've definitely done um, some updates to to the vision here since two thousand and one. Um, so where are we at um, in terms of winter operations? Obviously, a focus for me, especially with this winter, with how um, variable the snow has been, is snowmaking. Right? You know, we. Um, I come from the east, where snowmaking is. You know, they're they're much further along. You know, they have much more robust systems. They've got high energy, efficient systems. Um, they have full snowmaking teams. And, and here at Solitude, you know, we we have um, we have some work to do. You know, I was really proud of the team um, early season. We we got open early. Um, the temperatures were not cooperative. We didn't get any. We had all that snow in October and none in November. We opened trails um, differently than we had in the past. Uh, we did not open with wall-to-wall coverage, which which was a change for some. Um, but we opened, and um, you know the the skiing, the conditions for early season compared to what I had been used to, were really quite great. Right, um, right. You know, and, and I was really proud of our of our snowmaking and grooming team. Um, Brian Hansen here um, runs that. And, you know, they made it happen. It wasn't easy. And out here and, and at Solitude, you know, we don't, unlike Sugarbush or Killington or, you know, Stratton, who have robust snowmaking teams, at Solitude, our groomers are snowmaking. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? Like, so these are, it's a smaller operation and yeah. that's not easy to do 
when you now have to try to, you know, manage the guns throughout the day and night, as well as trying to groom the trails. And so we know that we've got some work to do on our snowmaking system, the way in which we get our water, the efficiency of our system, um, you know, the culverts, you know, this was a big wake up call to me. Somebody was like, oh, well, the culverts are in the middle of the trails. And I was like, gosh, I'm like, I don't really remember too many of those water bars out there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I'm used to culverts being horizontal. And right. here at Solitude, the culverts are vertical. And they're, wow. they're in the middle of the trails. <laughs> oh. You know, and that is so you basically make the snow and then you cover your yeah. culverts up, which means you can't get at your valves, which makes being able to go back and blow more snow throughout the season, which is a comment we, we've gotten here, it makes it really challenging. So, so snowmaking is definitely something that is, is high on our list to look at. Um, obviously lifts, you know, we have Eagle was the first, I, I believe was the first high speed um, quad in Utah. And now I think it's the oldest um, high yeah. speed uh, lift in Utah. So we, we need to get that one um, replaced, which is, which is definitely, um, in going to happen here in the next couple of years. Um, so those will probably be the first couple we are working in our, we're, we're right now working in our, um, with a, with a consultant to, um, imagine or reimagine sort of our base area optimization. And, um, if you've been to solitude, you'll know there is a challenge with the disconnect between the moonbeam base area and, and the village, which is where the, the lodging is. And it's, 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 not, it's not well connected in summer or winter. Um, and so we're trying to figure out how, how we can better uh, maximize the, the, the facilities we have and then create ways to try to make this more interconnected. Yeah, it's making me think of your neighbor, Alta, which has that really cool rope tow. I don't know if you've been over to Alta yet, but they have that really cool rope tow between the two base areas. It's really long. But if you if they didn't have that there, it would be so hard to get back. Oh yeah, and that's the same here. I think there was um, an iteration of the of the development plan that kind of had one of those cabriolet lifts between oh, yeah. the maybe yep. maze. Um, you know, and and those certainly work. Um, it's it's you know we have to also be reasonable with you know what we're going to ask for 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 growth capital and and whether or not we can kind of justify the return on that. But what we did do this year, and it, it's, um, it's worked really well, um, although some of our, you know, owners haven't loved it, but we, we took our shuttle that was off of what was going from our village over to Moonbeam, but it was running on the Canyon Road. And we, and we took it and we moved it to this back road that goes from the village to Moonbeam. And, um, and that has really kind of moved the needle on how to how to connect the two areas. Um, it's very accessible at both locations. It doesn't get caught up in the in the traffic on the weekends. Um, mm, nice. And uh, we've seen an incredible uptick in usage on that. Well, that's, that's terrific. As you as you look around the resort and you look to upgrade Eagle, are you considering maybe some bigger lifts? Because it, you know Salt Lake obviously is. Is growing like crazy. Uh, the Icon Pass has brought a lot more skiers than traditionally may have been at Solitude. Are you considering higher capacity lifts, a six person or an eight person lift as you consider, or are you still looking at a quad for Eagle? Yeah, that's a great question. We're, we're not quite there yet, but as you know, our biggest restriction here is parking. So the mountain with the current lift layout, you know, on our busiest day, you know, our lift lines are 
nothing, maybe 10 minutes at the most. And the skier density on the trails here, although again, you know, the locals who, who skied here 20 years ago are not loving the skier density, but compared to the East, where, you yeah. know, I'm used to twice as many skiers on a third yeah. of the skiable acreage. Um, you know, our, our skier density works really well. Um, so I don't know that I'm keen to go to a six or an eight pack. Um, I know those are big. Those seem to be quite popular um, as well as the bubbles and the heated seats. Um, we're, we haven't gone that far in to the um, the, the, the design strategy with our, with our development team to know what the right replacement lift is. Um, I do think that the mountain has the ability for more capacity just as its current lift layout. Um, and I'd like to see that, um, you know, I, if we can figure out some, some transportation solutions with public, better tr public transport and Valley parking, um, I think solitude would be poised in the next few years to see what it's like with an uptick in, 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 in visits on the mountain. Um, and I don't really know that I don't have enough knowledge yet, um, in my time here and, or in my role to know that we need a six or an APAC maybe, but maybe not. And as you look at your current lift fleet, Amber, do you think that this is the right footprint long-term for the mountain. I, I look at Honeycomb Canyon, for example, and that seems like a great place where you could put a lift to give experts some really nice terrain to lap and keep them off those other lifts. Because the return now really is, uh, is, is quite a bit to go from the bottom of honey, honey, Honeycomb back to the top. So are there any other places in Honeycomb or elsewhere where you've thought about or long-term plans call for possibly thinking about another lift? Well, like I said, <laughs> right now, my focus is taking what we do have and maximizing that. And, and we're not doing that, right? We're just not. I mean, right now we park out. Our parking is our constriction and the public transportation system here um, has opportunity. Again, what I really would like to see before I think about adding new lifts is I want to see what this mountain you know, how, how does it handle, you know, um, you know, another, you know, whatever percentage it is of skiers and riders, but to do that, our first focus needs to be on public transportation and ways in which we can get people, um, our guests, our locals to continue to carpool, continue to use the bus and, and hopefully get some more buses. Um, and we need to do that first, Stuart, before I can sit here and talk at all about where we would like or we need more lifts. I would say that right now my gut tells me we probably don't need more lifts servicing black diamond terrain. You know, solitude only has eight or nine percent beginner beginner terrain. And you know that's a challenge when you try to get families or groups with mixed abilities here. You know, I would probably say if if I had to be you know pressed for it that I'd be keen to figure out how we might add more beginner um, lift serve terrain. And, you know, and I, we don't have a lot of real estate for that, but that's probably something that would be um, right now that I would be more keen to explore versus adding another lift to service um, additional expert terrain in Honeycomb. Um, I think the access to Honeycomb is pretty great. I mean, you ride Summit, you can, you know, um, traverse across, um, 
you know, and, and, and get a lot of, 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 of the terrain there. You can um, uh, get off a powder horn. You can get off an eagle. You can access the train and you can go back and just hop on honeycomb return, you know, and you can kind of keep lapping. In my opinion right now, you actually, I think it's, I think the layout to service our, our expert terrain is, I think it's pretty good. Now, maybe there's some people, you know, I, I, I'm always, I'm sure it's amazing how many of our guests, um, you know, have, have feedback on how, <laughs> how better to operate the resorts, but, um, <laughs> But I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at after, you know, a very short period of time being here in solitude and in this job. So you bring up a really interesting point about green terrain. And I, I guess there's a couple different ways I could go with this. Number one, I did talk up Sugarbush and it is a tremendous mountain. However, you get to solitude and it is just amazing. And I think it might get overlooked a little bit by the expert set because it's right next door to Snowbird and Alta, which are just out of this world when it comes to expert terrain. But uh, number one, can you just talk about what an incredible skiers mountain solitude is? And the second part of that is, is there room to expand in your permit area and perhaps grow a little bit more of a beginner blue circle or maybe even some intermediate terrain looking into the future? Is that a possibility? Yeah, so that's 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 a great question. I do want to um, also highlight we are a, a rider's mountain, um, which actually, ironically, I still get asked here whether we allow snowboarding. And we, we love snowboarders. Um, <laughs> Come on down. Yeah, exactly. We love riders. Um, we're, we are situated, obviously, right next door to Brighton, which has a, a phenomenal um, rider uh, culture and experience. But, you know... <sighs> So, so it's interesting, you know, I have skied the other resorts, but I haven't skied a lot of the expert terrain. Um, I've skied some of it, but um, I haven't had the opportunity, mostly because I, I just, you know, before I get into double black diamond terrain, I always like to go with people who know it. And oftentimes yeah. I'm skiing by myself or <laughs> I'm with my husband, who's a phenomenal skier, but we don't, um, we don't always know where we're going. So I, in fairness, I haven't really had the opportunity to, to hit up some of the, the, the double blacks or um, at, at the various resorts. Although what people do tell me is kind of one of the striking differences between the little, the little cottonwood and the um, big cottonwood terrain is, you know, um, our, our faces, because we were formed by the ri a river versus a glacier, um, you know, our faces are much more variable. And so when you're on one of the ridge lines here, if you just scoot over 10, 15, 20 meters, you know, you're, it could be very different um, yeah. versus when you're, I know at least at Snowbird, I think of that kind of back mineral basin, like the faces are, are kind of similar. Um, and I think that's one of the things that does set solitude apart. Um, and I agree with you. I, I keep coming back to thinking like, we're, we're like the best, like we're kind of like a, like a little big mountain. I mean, you can ski all our lifts in about an hour, but yeah. if you want to ski a lot of this, you know, aspirational signature train, I mean, you, you know, you can spend all day, right? Cause it's, it's, it's so vast. As far as the boundary goes, you know, like I said, right now, the focus for us is really to, to do better with what we have. And, you know, until we figure out um, a better system for, or for making snow, which we need to figure out, because beginner terrain and intermediate terrain, they, they typically require good snowmaking. 
and we're just not set up for that. You know, I think the Sunrise Pod is amazing. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, terrain parks. We also don't have terrain parks, which um, terrain parks are fun. I have little kids and I can tell you one of my daughter's favorite trails at Sugarbush was Slowpoke, um, which has awesome terrain park features. So, you know, we'd like to get into that. I, I don't think we're looking to compete with Brighton with, with their awesome parks, but we would like to be able to offer some some terrain parks. And to do that, we need snowmaking. We need to, we need to be able to build we need to be able to put the, the the base down and refresh it throughout the season. So, I don't know yet um, that we are are in the our, our our appetite to expand more terrain right now is is pretty low. the The next thing that we want to fo- the really where we want to focus in these next like three to five years is focusing on what we have this incredible resort, this incredible terrain. And how can we better maximize it for our guests? And, you know, we would like to have more guests here to do that. We've got to get back to the public transport piece. But at down the road, yeah, I do think we're going to, I would like us to see if we can explore um, some, some, some more low angle beginner terrain. And, um, you know, that will require some conversations with, you know, our forest service to see if we can make it work. There might be some terrain over there. Um, kind of below the sunrise area. Um, it's hard to know the, the patchwork of land ownership in these canyons is mind blowing. I don't know <laughs> if you've ever seen a land ownership map here, but oh my good, goodness gracious. It's uh, it's like, it literally is like the most unbelievable patchwork quilt. So, so I don't know enough about the ownership model and, and, and what, what we would be able to do, but there is, we have quite a bit of area within our permitted boundary to explore. Um, we just got to figure out whether we can make it work and whether it makes sense for the business in the coming years. So let's talk about Solitude's relation with Brighton, relationship with Brighton. I, I've always thought it's very interesting. Do you have these two side-by-side resorts that are connected? And I, I realize you had that with Sugarbush and Mad River Glen. They weren't connected. They did share a college pass. I understand the relationship between those two mountains is very good. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's a good, it's more of a partner relationship than a competitor relationship as Wynn put it to me on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, but, but talk about that relationship with Brighton just in general and, and how nice that interconnect is as a way to create this sort of ski circus feeling that you don't often get in America where you're skiing from place to place. It's almost a little bit European. They have the same thing over next door at Alta and Snowbird. And it's a really phenomenal experience to be able to pop around and do all these kind of things. So just talk about that relationship and 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 what it's like to have these two big mountains side by side working together. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's, it is phenomenal. The Alta Snowbird and, and the Brighton Solitude, it is wild to essentially have these, I don't even know how many thousands, it's probably 3,000 for us and I don't know, five or 6,000 for Little Cattenwood. Um, you know, we have a great relationship. I, I, I would describe the relationship with Brighton as a as a partnership. Um, I, I do think it's, um, it's not quite akin to what Sugarbush and Mad River Glen had, um, but we, you know, we, we, we're, we are, we, our brands are different. You know, Brighton has an incredible snowboard um, terrain park culture. They have night skiing um, and, you know, solitude, we kind of lean more into, we are more ski heavy. Um, like I said, we would like more riders. Um, and, you know, we have, 
we have more of that um, aspirational terrain. The other thing about solitude that I just, we were just talking about, my husband and I, that is really cool about our mountain is that there, when you go to Snowbird and Alta um, and, and to a lesser degree, Brighton, but um, you know, you can get kind of separated from your group pretty easily and end up on different sides of those ridgelines. And, you know, at solitude, what I, I think what makes us, what really makes us stand out is, you know, all of our lifts, you can ski intermediate or advanced terrain and end up back at the same lift. And I think that's one thing that's really cool. And also like when you have kids or, or you have new skier riders in your groups, like you don't really get separated from the herd here the same way that you can experience at some of these other big resorts. And I, and I think that's what, what does make solitude. That's kind of in my first season here. What, what we really like is, you know, I can, my husband and I, we have a four-year-old, we can go, you know, we, we see, we see the writing on the wall in a few years, right. Where it's like, yeah. we can be lapping summit and they can take dynamite and we can head into, <laughs> you know, headwall forest. And then we meet right at the bottom and we're back on the lift right. again, you know, and that's, we're really, we're really excited about um, that and being able to raise our kids here, but back to the Brighton, you know, it is awesome. I, uh, I, I, I've come to know Randy Doyle who runs Brighton. He is amazing. I feel very lucky that um, I have this opportunity to get to know him and understand his history. You know, his family started that mountain. It is such a great resort. Um, and I do think that our partnership with them is is solid. Um, and we have some opportunities to learn. You know, they, they've done a great job with their snowmaking and their, their terrain parks. Um, and I, you know, Nate Lee, I talked about earlier, you know, he has a good relationship with that crew up there. And, you know, if anything were to come up, you know, I, I feel very much that Solitude and Brighton are ready to support each other. We work really closely with the town and the, and the Department of Transportation on traffic and, and congestion in the canyon. It's a really interconnected, supported relationship. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm with you. It's, it's incredible that we are. It's so easy to get between the two resorts and the terrain from, you know, you think about Great Western all the way around to, you know, Honeycomb Canyon, like it's, it's phenomenal terrain. So Amber, you've mentioned parking and congestion a number of times now. So let's, let's get right into this. I think for those who may not have been to Big Cottonwood Canyon in the past decade, it has really changed and Utah is really changing on a macro level and the population growth out there is real and you have a, a very fit, you know, uh, well-off population that likes to be active and likes to be active outside in the wintertime. And the, the, the fact on the ground is those canyons aren't getting any wider. Um, there's only so many, so much you can do with the existing infrastructure and you have to balance that because building anything takes a really long time. So lay out this whole world for us. The, the congestion issues you're dealing with, the, the limited base area, the parking plan that you're solving that, that at. And long-term, you've mentioned mass transit, what is solitude thinking are the solutions to keep people moving up into the canyon, get them on the lifts and not have the focus be on a bad experience getting up or down? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, in fairness, I'm still fairly new here and, and, and I haven't concluded the first season. Um, but, you know, we the fir my first response is that, you know, obviously uh, people tell me that have been here a long time is that people are moving to Salt Lake city, you know, that obviously there's, there's, there's been quite an influx. 
Um, the other is access that that does make you know Salt Lake um, and Utah really unique is that you can fly into the, the airport, get in a rental car, and within less than an hour you can be at these incredible resorts. So then we have these canyons, right? And they're box canyons. It's one road in and out. And it's primarily one lane, um, you know, and, and they were designed for a way of life that has changed. Um, to be honest with you, I, I feel like the work that the, the individuals who've been here for a long time have done has really helped. You know, it's very there is a very coordinated um, plan in place to, to try our best to manage communication, right? So the biggest issue in the canyon probably is just the impact on travel time, right? And so how does that impact your locals who live in the canyon, who are just simply trying to get to and from their homes, as well as visitors? And what I find is that, you know, your destination visitors, they're not really all that bothered by traffic and congestion. You know, they're on vacation. They're in vacation break yeah. mode. And, you know, they're like, it's so beautiful and there's so much sunshine. Um, but the locals who are who are our biggest constituents, it's it is hard. And and they're definitely the ones who are the most frustrated, rightfully so, right? Um, but we do have a very coordinated um, um, approach. We we meet once a month. We have a road meeting once a month with all the stakeholders to talk about that month, what what went well, what didn't go well. We every every busy day and every weekend we have a group text where we. Um, give updates on the status of our parking lots as well as any um, notable items on the canyon when we hit certain levels we have road signs at the base of the canyon that give updates on how full the parking lots at brighton and solitude are and then if we hit a point where the parking lots and the roadside parking has filled up um, then they do a communication of you know canyon full and then they have um, entities from both resorts and the and the police department who meet to start turning cars away that really hasn't happened much this winter um i think a couple things we've tried to do here in big cottonwood is we moved our our, our lift hours to 8 a.m so and that's really helped a lot at least oh, really? in the morning um so by moving to the 8 a.m opening for sh for sugar for solitude that allows us to get our kind of early birds up here first before Brighton opens at nine. So that that has like made a little bit of change. The other difference is I think people don't realize is, you know, our canyon has 81 hours of resort operations a week. When you add up, um, you know, on any given Saturday in Big Conway Canyon, we're open from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. Wow. Between Solitude and Brighton, that's a lot of operating hours. Um, so I do think we have a good coordinated plan. Um, some of the challenges are the frustrations with roadside parking. Um, you know, some people some people don't want to pay for parking, which is you know something that Kim implemented a few years ago. I still think it's the right thing, and, and we're going to stay the course. The roadside parking, and particularly if if people get it wrong and don't get the cars all the way off the road, it can create some real challenges for the plows, right? And it's it's kind of mind blowing to me that people with these very nice, expensive cars are comfortable <laughs> leaving them within a few inches of these massive plows. Um, and also won't pay 20 bucks for parking. Right. Right. Yes. Um, so, so the roadside parking is a real challenge and, and, you know, we're, we're, we're working with the town and with Brighton and forest service and UDOT to, to, to continue to, you know, what can we do better there? Um, 
The other, you know, obviously the bus. So Solitude, some people don't know this, but um, Solitude Mountain Company actually pays for um, free bus access for all of our pass holders and all of the ICON pass holders. So we actually foot that bill for both big and little Cottonwood Canyons. And we're, we're on track to spend, you know, close to half a million dollars in that investment um, every year. And, um, and we just got out of free fare February, which was awesome. So all of UTA in celebration of the, 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 the winter games. Um, and we've seen incredible usage on the, on the bus this year um, to support that. Because if some people don't realize is there's only 23 seats on the bus, which means 17 people have to stand and there's no storage racks for your gear. So you have to hold it. Okay. Now, when you get on the bus at the bottom of the canyon and it's a Saturday and it might take you know, with the bus stopping, it could take you an hour. That means if you're like me with my husband and a family with little kids and you didn't get a seat, you're standing with your gear. That's a challenge, you know, and I don't think that's really an, that's not like the best solution. And, and, and it's the right solution for what they needed to do to get more um, capacity on the buses. But I think that's an opportunity. Um, uh, then just parking at the bus lots in the valley, you know, those fill up pretty quick. Um, I think that more people would ride the bus if there was a little bit more capacity. Um, and then because the buses have to come into, like at Solitude, the bus has to come into our parking lot, it really um, impacts the, the idle time. And so then the buses get off schedule, right? And there's nothing that like derails public transport more than lack of reliability. So if the buses aren't on schedule, the, 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 the riders, begin to lose confidence, they get frustrated, and then they're like, forget it, I'm just going to get in my vehicle. Um, I will say, you know, just kind of coming back to the roadside parking, I think people also don't really understand our parking model well in terms of payment. We do offer park season parking passes, but if you have two, we do charge $25 a day if there's one person in the car. But as soon as you have two people, it goes down to 15. And as soon as you get four people in the car, it's five bucks a day. So. Oh, wow. And, you know, so it really does get pretty affordable. We do take quite a hit. A lot of people are, do not love the paid parking and they think, you know, we're just doing it as, a, as an extra revenue stream. And we do make money from it, but we use that money to reinvest to pay for the parking that, that we've implemented, as well as to offset the costs of the UTA bus, which I told you earlier are, are you know, pretty expensive. Um, but, uh, you know, when you add up the price of an ICON pass, which most of our pass holders are, and the price of a solitude season parking pass, you're still less than what the season passes <laughs> were years ago when it was just a solitude only pass. And so, you know, sometimes I just think we kind of forget, we quickly forget as consumers where, where pricing was you know, X amount of years ago. I mean, that's ancient history at this point, but um, yeah, I mean, that's not, that's on our radar. We'd like to try to get the bus out of the lot and we're, we're trying to work with the stakeholders and figuring out how we could do that, move that out to the road. Um, we'd like to be um, having conversations with the right entities to see about more um, buses, uh, you know, more uh, Valley parking. We're, we're interested in, and maybe even trying to move to some goals with employees, um, kind of those red flag days you pick them throughout the winter. You say, these are going to be the biggest days. We try to get the bulk of our employees to park down in the valley and then get them on either shuttle vans or buses to bus them up. Um, and we do that right now. We have four UTA vans that we um, rent for the season. They are 15 passenger vans that we run from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. 
you know, so we can transport 60 employees daily. Um, and we've had really good usage of that this year, this winter as well. So why don't the, I've always wondered this, why don't those buses have ski racks on them on the side? That is a great question. <laughs> I, yes. Um, I also asked that. So interestingly enough, they used to have racks on the outside. Okay. But to, in order to create more capacity, they took them off. So the buses, the way it was described to me, they took them off so the buses could be wider to allow for more people. Um, but that is something that has come up regularly in the conversations um, is whether or not the racks could, if we're at a point now where racks could go back on the buses. Um, and and I, so that that is in the that is in the conversation mix right now. Um, and, and that's a decision that the bus, um, the UTA, uh, Utah Transit Authority would have to consider and and uh, put into place. But yeah, I mean, just making the buses a little bit more rider friendly if they had Wi-Fi on them. Um, you know, I think I think we can. Do, I really think we can move the needle. Um, but I don't want to be misleading. I mean, forty buses. You can put forty people on a bus. I mean, you 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 don't have to do the math too far in to realize you you can't literally run enough buses to move the amount of people that that are tri typically going to frequent the canyon on a weekend for whether they're skiing riding at the resorts or backcountry or they're just going up to sled at Cardiff or they're going to take pictures like we wouldn't be able to run that many buses but I do think most of us agree that we can move the needle by getting more people on the bus and this could happen in the next couple of years. So next door in Little Cottonwood Canyon, very interesting project proposal unfolding, which is a potential gondola from the mouth of the canyon up to Snowbird and Alta. That project is facing a lot of opposition and may or may not happen. And uh, we don't need to talk about the pluses and minuses of that right now, but are you watching that project? And if it's successful, is that something that you'd considered for Big Cottonwood Canyon to just get the people off the roads, into the air, and from satellite lots up to the resorts? <laughs> Stuart. <laughs> um, so I just joined the Central Wasatch Commission Stakeholders Council. I, I just went yes. my second month on that. You know, I, um, I, I'm trying my best to learn quickly about, you know, the, the, the gondola and the pros and cons and, and whatnot. And I believe they're going to come out with a decision on that here shortly. Um, you know, I really haven't spent a heap of time looking at the impacts from, from the holistic view of what this gondola is or isn't going to do. Um, do I think it sounds, I mean, it sounds incredible. I, I, I will say that, you know, some of those destination gondolas, I've been to the one at Whistler, um, you know, they are amazing and they are in and of themselves, um, their own attract draw, right? I don't know enough that this is going to, how this is going to play out for Little Cottonwood. Um, and, and I certainly, you know, from what the people who've been here tell me, like the, the, the way in which our canyons were designed, like Little Cottonwood is definitely a straight shot. It's not as long and you get to the top and you can like look straight down it. That is not mm -hmm. the case in Big Cottonwood. Like <laughs> it is just windy, windy road and it's not straight. And so I... I don't see that being really as engineeringly feasible. Um, 
And I don't really know enough about the other um, transportation, like transformative transportation solutions, whether, you know, the gondola or a train on how that's going to work. Right. I really just haven't spent time yet investing in that. What I do feel like many people at the table agree on is that an enhanced bus system in the near term is not going to totally solve it, but it is definitely going to make an improvement. And I don't know yet where the technology is with electric buses, um, although I remain hopeful, but I, I hope, I, I'm very hopeful because I wanna see changes happening now. I don't wanna wait five, 10, 15, however many years for this to get figured out. I'd like to see us doing what we can now to move the needle on more public buses, because those are working. That is a great transportation, public transportation program here in Utah. Um, the UTA is a, they're a pleasure to work with. It's a great organization. I, everybody that I've interacted, the drivers do an awesome job. So I think if we can, you know, try to try to start with that and maybe, you know, figure out some enhancements to the buses themselves and then increase frequency, um, you know, maybe, maybe that is a reasonable and attainable goal here in the next one, two, three, I don't know, five years. And, and that's kind of what's been on my mind. I really haven't been able to dedicate a lot of um, resources to the idea of these transformative transportation solutions, whether it's a gondola or a train. Um, yeah, it's pretty slick too. I, I haven't used it since you've installed it at Solitude, but I have used the shuttle between Snowbird and Alta quite a bit. And you just get on and you you, you scan your icon pass and it acts like a fair card. It's It all works very well. And the, the bus is... Uh, you know, they do have, I'll point out, little corrals for your skis inside. Yeah. Um, so so you don't always have to hold your, your stuff necessarily, but um, but it works really nice. Yeah, yeah. I've, 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 same with you. I've been shuttling back and forth from Solitude to Brighton. Um, and exactly, yeah, your passes, the Icon Pass, your resort passes, um, you scan them, you get on. Um, yeah, it's a slick system and it's really well done. And, and I think there's, yeah. I'm excited to see and, and to continue to have conversations about how we continue to enhance that. All right, Amber, let's wrap up here today by talking about the Icon Pass. Altera has been, I think, very smart to continually adjust the access tiers on its Icon Pass. So a few years ago or a couple of years ago now, we saw Aspen and Jackson Hole drop off of the base pass and go to a special base pass plus tier when those mountains were starting to get concerned about the skier experience. You saw Altera owned Crystal Mountain go from unlimited with no blackouts on the base pass tier to five days only with blackouts on the base pass tier. And, and you have to buy up to the full icon pass for that extra 300 bucks to get unlimited crystal access. I'm wondering about your thoughts on Solitude. Do you think that, because right now Solitude is unlimited on the base pass with holiday blackouts. If you want to get rid of the blackouts, you go up. Do you think that that's the right position for Solitude on the Icon Pass as you look ahead to next season? Yes, that is a great question. Um, and, you know, it, it, yes. So I think right now the current model is the right model. We are blacked out on the base pass on holidays. Um, and the bulk of the Utah Icon Pass holder is an Icon Base Pass holder. So on holiday periods right now, that is reserved for the icon full only. Um, we actually 
in my opinion, we still have capacity. So those are days, the signature from Christmas to President's Weekend or your signature resort holidays. Um, we're fully staffed, we're ready to go. And our visitation is not near capacity on those days. Um, and, and that's because that blackout protocol works. Um, so I think that the model does make sense. Um, other days throughout the season, you know, we've, we've really navigated. We do, like I said, we do, we do fill up on parking, but um, we found that our parking team does such a great job of organically turning over those lots, turning those spaces, getting people, getting them out. But I, I'm not concerned right now about um, the current model for the Icon Pass and Solitude. Is it possible in the coming years that that might change? Of course. And that's like a very fluid conversation with corporate. We have a really good relationship um, with the senior team that makes the decision. And, you know, each year we'll be we'll be giving them that feedback and and they'll be giving us the feedback of the business goals. And and I'm not we're not there yet. Could we get there? Absolutely. You know, as we see what happens with um you know, past sales and, um, you know, quantity and volume, we'll, we'll know, we'll know, I will probably be the first one to know and say, you know what, we've hit a point where maybe we need to relook re at the structure and, and the access at Solitude. But right now, I, I don't. And I, now I will admit there are locals, a lot of locals who don't agree with me. You know, they're very disappointed. Um, and they're, 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 they miss the solitude of old, right? They miss the solitude of 20 years ago where you could pull right in, you know, you could get right on the lift. And it was this, you know, it was truly solitude as they describe it. Um, but I think hopefully in this podcast, what we've talked about is we know that's not a financially sustainable model and, um, and that we do need to create volume and capacity. Um, so I think we're in a good spot. I'm really excited. I actually am very excited for the Icon Pass to um, launch uh, later this week, or the, at least the announcements of it. And I'm really excited for the for for Utah and you know um, you know I think this product. I was just on the lift yesterday, was sitting next to three young men, and they were all Icon Pass holders, and they were talking about their plans to go ski Japan in Europe oh, wow. and oh. New Zealand. And they didn't know who I was. I just sat there listening and I just was so, my, it was like smiling and, you know, they were, <laughs> they're just like how much they, they love the pass and the ability that it brought for them to ski and ride so many incredible resorts throughout the world. Um, so, so yeah, I do think the current model works. Um, I do think that we'll be in close, we'll be watching it closely in the coming years to see if we hit a point where we need to change that where where the unlimited access um, might need to be um, looked at. Um, but I think, you know, it's hard to know, too, what what the um, the ownership model will look like in three or five years as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my take. All right, Amber. Well, a lot of exciting things ahead for Solitude and for the Icon Pass. Uh, congratulations again on this new job. It sounds like you're having a really good time oh, yeah. out there in that Utah powder. I hope you get a very snowy March <laughs> and a very snowy April to make up for, for the, Jan the slow January and February you might have had. So thank you so much for your time, Amber. I, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to meeting you in person, hopefully at some point and making a few turns at Solitude. Yeah, thank you so much, Stuart. And I would love to have you out here to take some turns together soon. So
that's Amber Broadway, President and Chief Operating Officer of Solitude Mountain Resort, Utah. Amber, I absolutely love that. Love when I can talk Vermont and Utah in a single episode and with someone whose heart is embedded in both. Both amazing, amazing ski states with tremendous ski culture and love for the sport. Solitude Skiers, I think she puts you in a very good position for a very long time to come, and I think you're very lucky to have her there. Thank you all for listening today. Here is what I have ahead for you on the podcast. Coming up next, the general manager of Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania. That one is already in the can. Then a fast return to Utah with Beaver Mountain owner Travis Seeholzer. Following that, I will have the leaders of Beaver Creek, Colorado, Snow Ridge, New York, Big Sky, Montana, and Summit Esnoqualmie, Washington. And two new ones that I am just announcing on the podcast today, Ragged Mountain General Manager Eric Barnes and one of the eminent voices in U.S. skiing, Arapahoe Basin Chief Operating Officer Alan Hensroth. Remember that the best way to get in-the-moment updates on the Storm's podcast schedule is to follow me on Twitter at StormSkiJournal. That is also my Instagram handle for a slightly different and less newsy feed. And remember, go to StormSkiing.com and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter, where I am exploring the world of lift-served skiing all year long. That's right. The storm does not stop when the snow melts. I am obsessed, and if you are too, the storm is the right place to be. Check out the different tiers of the newsletter, decide what is right for you, and I will look forward to seeing you there. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.